Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah Blank. I am a visiting fellow, visiting research fellow here at the National University of Singapore. Thank you all for joining us. As all of you know, we have had a very turbulent few weeks in Afghanistan. This is obviously a tremendously important story for the people of Afghanistan and also for the people of the region and for the wider world. So we're going to discuss these issues with two key experts uh, and also with everyone of you out there. Uh, I'll say a few words about our experts and about myself, and then we will just get right into it. So we have with us today, first, I should uh, offer my apologies, one of the advertised experts, uh, Pashtana Durrani, unfortunately is not able to join us. Uh, we hope that she is okay. She was planning on joining us from Afghanistan and uh, we hope that it just is a communications issue, but this really highlights uh, the stakes that are at hand here. So uh, I will go ahead and introduce our panelists. First is Dr. Nina Bhatt of the World Bank, who is an advisor in the East Asia Pacific region, but has worked through many other regions and is an expert on social safeguards and on gender issues. She is an anthropologist by training and joins us from here in Singapore. Uh, our second expert is Matthew Ho, who, uh, joy, uh, who has not yet joined us. So I'll introduce, uh, I'll introduce him when he, uh, when he comes on, but he'll be, he'll be joining us as well. A bit about myself. My name is Jonah Blank, and I am a visiting research fellow here at the National University of Singapore. Before uh, coming here, I, for about nine plus years, I worked on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee as the South and Southeast Asia Policy Director for a fellow named Joe Biden. Uh, for three years after that, I fulfilled the same job for his successor as the Chairman of Foreign Relations, uh, John Kerry. Uh, so I have dealt with uh, a lot of these issues uh, from the period of 1999 to 2009, and I'm happy to provide uh, my perspective on that. And Matt is now joined us. I'll just say a few words uh, about him, and then we'll get right to it. Uh, Matt Holm is a, uh, one of the uh, rare people who has served in Afghanistan as both a civilian and in a military capacity. He was the leader of a provincial reconstruction team, a PRT, which he, uh, in, in which role he served as a civilian, which is quite unusual. Prior to that, he was a Marine Corps captain. Uh, and now he is very involved in peace activism and uh, other things I'll let him explain. So let me kick this over first to, uh, to Dr. Bhatt, then to Matt, and then after a few introductory remarks from both of them, we'll go right to question and answer with the rest of uh, the people online and really make that the focus of today's discussion. So uh, Nina, why don't you just uh, say a few words about yourself, a few words perhaps to frame the issue of Afghanistan in terms of its social impact. Uh, and then we'll ask Matt for the same thing. 
Great. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Blank, and a special thanks to NUS for organizing this and having me over. So my name, as Jonah mentioned, is Nina Bhatt. I'm an anthropologist by training. Um, I have worked in several World Bank regions, including South Asia. And uh, I'm here today to discuss or offer my thoughts on gender and development. I'm not an Afghanistan specialist per se, but do have a deep background in gender. And I should just you know, open also by mentioning that I'm not here as a spokesperson for the World Bank. I'm here in my um, private capacity as an academic and also a development practitioner. I look forward to the conversation. I look forward to hearing from everyone and look forward to making some remarks, contributing. Thank you, Jonah, over to you. Thank you, Nina. Now, Matt, thank you so much for joining us from the US where it is uh, evening. Uh, so thank you for staying up late. Um, any any uh, introductory words, both about yourself and uh, to help frame your view of how we should be discussing Afghanistan? Well, thank you uh, and uh, good morning. Um, it's uh, great to see you, Jonah. Uh, uh, when I uh, resigned my position in protest with the State Department uh, from Af Afghanistan in 2009, uh, Jonah was a, a, a wonderful help to me, uh, just a, a really terrific, um, you know, just just having that 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 relationship with Jonah that developed, uh, where he was coming from, his views, and in his willingness to be supportive of someone who was not saying, you know, not speaking in line with the narrative, um, was a great help to me and a great assistance. Um, and the way he did it as well, the, the way you maintain, you know, the professionals and everything else, I've always been grateful. So it's really really nice to be here with you, and it's it's great to be speaking to you all again. Good morning. Um, uh, yeah, I, I just one correction. I was a, a I was not a Marine uh, officer in Afghanistan. I was a Marine officer in Iraq. So I've been in Iraq twice, both once as a civilian off official in Iraq and once as a Marine officer in Iraq and then in Afghanistan as a civilian official again. Um, I would say that I, I, I am not an Afghanistan expert. Um, I don't speak the languages. I, I mean, my, my understanding is, is, is what I've read, what I, I've been told. Uh, the time I've spent there, but by no means my Afghanistan expert. If I was going to say I'm an expert of anything, it's about the U.S. military, uh, the U.S. government, uh, the way the American empire operates, uh, the, the, these wars that have existed, these direct wars that have existed, as well as the predecessors, the, the antecedents that brought these wars about for the last 20 years. Those are the things I'm very knowledgeable about. And one of the things um, that, that really was a, a, a catalyst for my resignation in 2009 in Afghanistan was the fact that when I got to Afghanistan uh, and seeing that the war was no fundamentally different than the war in Iraq, uh, at least from the American perspective, at least, right? I mean, in terms of plenty of differences between Iraq and Afghanistan, but in the sense that as long as the American military was there trying to achieve victory through warfare, um, as far as I was concerned, there were no other differences that mattered. So that, that's primarily where I come from um, when, when talking about these things. Great, well, thank you, Matt. Um, and I'm really looking forward to getting your perspective on, uh, on this because many of the things that we're seeing in Afghanistan right now are things that Matt had been warning me about over 10 years ago. So let me start out though with Nina just sort of framing the, uh, or framing some of the, the questions we should be asking. 
from a perspective, from an anthropological perspective, and from a uh, from a gender and social safeguards uh, perspective, because a lot of the discussion uh, on policy in Afghanistan has centered around the impact on girls and women. And too often that tends to get left out of the discussion uh, when, we, when we do get into some of the discussion about military issues, geopolitics. So I'd kind of like to get that out first, just to make sure that um, we're, um, we're keeping our eyes on one of the, uh, the issues that affects at least half of the population most directly. Oh, thank you, Jonah. That's a very good point. And just a few remarks on my end. As everybody knows, the situation is fluid. It's fast moving, ever changing. And um, the fall or let's say the takeover by the Taliban was extremely swift and as everybody knows, unexpected. And prior to these recent set of events, I think that, you know, we all know that there was a lot of prog progress over time for women in terms of gender equality. We saw much progress in the areas of education, health, access to services. There was much mobility, much more freedom, freedom of speech. You had women in cafes, you know, there was also um, much more, let's say, um, uh, permissiveness in terms of women and men being together in the public area. Now, what we also read about is that the Taliban have made a lot of commitments. They've committed and they've made a lot of promises that things have changed, that they are different, that they're a different voice and a different force. Um, I think it's too early to say, of course, um, promises are being made, but um, what they have said so far is that in terms of gender, gender equality, that it all has to be within the framework of Islam or the Islamic framework. Now, that's a very broad statement. We don't know what that means. So, um, you know, in some ways we're biding time. And, you know, a bit later I can talk about, you know, the areas in which engagement would be needed. Over to you, Jonah. Okay, thank you. I, I think, you know, that's a very good, uh, uh, a very good caution, especially the watch actions rather than listen to words. I think we've heard a lot of good rhetoric from the Taliban, but uh, we, we have to keep in mind the fact that uh, some of these same, um, these same words were being said back in the 1990s. So I think uh, some caution definitely is very much warranted. Uh, now, Matt, uh, you and I haven't spoken in a uh, in number of years, and I'm really interested to hear how you see a lot of the, the causes, that, the things that caused you to resign, uh, what you described to me at the time as the best job you'd ever had, uh, or the second best job uh, you'd ever had, since you also had said commanding a, uh, a Marine uh, company was the best job and commanding a PRT was the second best job, but you resigned out of conscience. And my recollection, at least, you can calibrate me if I'm off, is that a lot of the concerns you raised in 2009 uh, are ones that we're really seeing come, <laughs> come to fruition right now. Uh, I can say, having staffed uh, then-Senator Biden in 2009, uh, both he and I shared some of these concerns, but you were more out in front and more willing to be vocal and to risk your career uh, about them. So uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear what you feel is simply um, more of the same that we should have known 12 years ago and what perhaps is new. 
I think um, a lot of it, you know, goes back to just the inception of this war. I mean, again, the war actually is, is, is not 20 years old. It's more than 40 years old. I mean, this is a, this is a living legacy of the Cold War. Um, and so a lot of the same types of, you see the same type of actions by the United States government throughout these 40, 40 45 years of trying to control things um, that are inherently uncontrollable, uh, trying to uh, re achieve results using people, groups, forces that not only the United States has no ability to truly control, but doesn't actually really understand. I mean, and so for people certainly are familiar with, um, you know, the creation of Al Qaeda, you know, those types of things, that type of blowback. Um, the, the other thing too is, is the um, utilization of a divide and conquer strategy uh, where uh, something that the United States has been using um, its entire existence. I mean, before it was the United States, when it was still colonies of the British uh, Empire, uh, the United States, uh, the colonists used divide and conquer strategies against the Native Americans. Um, so this idea of pitting some against the other, you know, trying to pick winners and losers, um, but basically um, uh, trying to manipulate um, a demographic by splitting it, by fracturing it, uh, so that you can control it, has been a mainstay of American foreign policy and military policy for all the United States' um, uh, you know, experiences. I mean, it's true it happened in Central America, it happened uh, uh, you know, certainly in Vietnam, happened uh, you know, in the, the, uh, 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 the war in the Philippines. I mean, on and on, examples like this all, but you certainly see this, uh, I think most especially in Iraq, where the United States uh, you know, does a divide and conquer strategy where it wants to pit the Sunnis uh, versus the Shia versus the Kurds. Right, and what becomes of that? Thinking you can control that type of uh, uh, that type of force that you're unleashing, what it becomes a genocidal civil war in Afghanistan. The same thing is too. In the 1970s, it's building these splits in Afghan society between the rural and the urban, the um, the more progressive or the more modern versus traditional, the secular, the religious, as well as along ethnic lines, because it unfortunately kind of starts fracturing that way. And then the Soviets are guilty of this as well, and it's not the Americans, but the Americans keep use, utilizing this strategy, um, basically, uh, especially, I mean, or especially after the United States comes in in 2001 with its invasion and occupation. So with that, um, you know, this idea that somehow you're going to divide and conquer, you're going to subjugate one part of the population, and it's not going to push them to um insurgent groups it's not going to push them to extremist groups particularly groups that are allied to them ethnically like what we saw happen with the pashtuns in southern and eastern afghanistan where they felt that they were being occupied not just by an outside foreign power but by traditional internal enemies and so of course that's why i, I think the the correct description of the taliban coming back in strength into afghanistan is not so much them invading back in, right? As opposed to them being pulled back in. Because one of the things too that's coupled with this is the um, side that the United States does take its, its part on, the side that the United States puts into power, you know, the United States invades in 2001, takes one side of a civil war out of power, puts the other side in power. Well, that side was uh, um, a, uh, uh, you know, mainly warlords and drug lords. So what you have is you have the United States coming into Afghanistan, taking out of power a theocratic repressive government and putting into power a predatory kleptocracy, right? And then, I mean, and, and they see so just imagine that spinning, 
And imagine that every year, the cycle of violence worsening. Every year, uh, more people having to choose, because this is basically what the United States policy did for more than two decades was to the Afghan people, but through the barrel of a rifle, you must either choose between foreign occupation and this corrupt, uh, this corrupt predatory government or this theocratic repressive organization, right? I mean, those are two choices by the barrel of a rifle we're given the Afghans for basically two decades. We also set up a system in Afghanistan where basically it comes down to the guys with the guns. And I mean, to, and I, I want to be as gender specific as possible here, the men with the guns rule. And that's a system that we created. That's a system that was in play, in, 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 that the United States put in power. All the, the trappings, all the reconstruction, all the um, advancements, the progress, the elections, that was, you know, for the most part, um, you know, convenient, uh, convenient to the narrative, if you will, of, of the United States and Afghanistan. But for the most of the 20 years, or the last 20 years, the United States has tried to win the war militarily. Uh, it's not until the second half of, of the Trump uh, president, uh, of, of Trump's administration, that the United States actually commits to negotiating uh, uh, in Afghanistan. Up until 2018, September 2018, U.S. policy in Afghanistan was that the <clears throat> Taliban had to basically surrender uh, in order to negotiate. And Trump changes that, you know, not because Trump had any interest for the Afghans. This is totally about Trump's ego, about wanting to feel like some kind of campaign promise he made, about coming across as being a more effective, competent commander in chief than the previous presidents had. You know, it's all about Trump, nothing about the Afghans. But you can see, though, that as soon as Trump commits to negotiating with the, the Taliban, they negotiate, right? I mean, they do. They, I mean, he sends Khalilzad, uh, meets with the Taliban, and within a year, there's an agreement. And then Trump has a temper tantrum, right, in September of, of 2019 that delays the signing of the Doha agreement for six months. But, you know, I mean, so it's basically it's a long way of trying to explain the, the policy that the United States using, you know, building this house of cards, this corrupt predatory uh, 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 patronage network of a government. You know, I mean, that's how you arrive at this point. Uh, and that's how you, you arrive at this point that once the money stops flowing into the Afghan government, once it's basically a pyramid scheme. Um, I mean, once the money stops flowing into it and once uh, those um, who are no longer receiving that money realize that they are now on the losing side, well, they quickly change sides. And that's what you saw. And you saw the Taliban, too, replicating how they took power in the 90s. I mean, the Taliban were an effective fighting force in the 90s. But, you know, if you talk to Afghans about how they won in, you know, how they took Kabul in 96 and most of the rest of the country, they will tell you it was, you know, off of the, off through the Pakistani rupee, right? They bought most of their, their victory. And that's what we saw them do this time as well. I mean, these cities fell, these provincial capitals fell, these road networks fell, these border crossings fell with not a lot of fighting. I mean, not, not to take away from the violence that existed. It was very bloody up until August in Afghanistan. But it was not the type of fight that Afghanistan had seen in the last 40 years. Thank you. Now, this, uh, there is a lot to discuss here, and I'm going to have a few thoughts. But before I do, I want to ask our audience to please submit your questions. And then Sharon will be um, rooting them to me, and I'll be uh, rooting them to the panelists since I'd really like this to be as participatory as possible and really uh, addressing the questions of our audience as much as possible. So please send those questions in. Now, um, 
I think one of the key things that Matt has raised is an issue that is probably on the minds of most of the audience. How did this happen so quickly? A few months ago, the public narrative was that Afghanistan, the government of Afghanistan, was the most legitimate that had ever existed in Afghanistan. It had been freely, although not necessarily fairly elected. It had a 300,000 troop uh, army. It had been, uh, it had a military built up with $80 billion of US assistance and many billions more. Uh, perhaps Nina has a good number, or actually I won't put her on the spot there since uh, uh, these numbers are difficult to come by. Um, of a huge amount of development aid in addition, how did this fall so quickly? And I think Matt really put his finger, in my view at least, on the reason that this was always a house of cards. This was always an incredibly hollow and fragile structure and a very predatory structure, one that did not really serve the purposes of the Afghan population very well and was just waiting essentially to be pushed over and that that's why it uh, fell so quickly. So why don't I put that sort of thesis back to our panelists while, and again, encourage our audience to send in their questions since I could talk about this forever, but I really wanna get the audience questions in. So Nina, what do, what do you think from the social perspective and the development perspective, you've seen a lot of money flow into Afghanistan from the, uh, from the wider region, but as you know, and as you can tell us uh, much better, sometimes it's not just about money, it's about how the money is spent and where the money actually goes. You know, how does one do effective social development? Right, so um, that's a very good question and effective social development or effective development in general is not reliant on money alone. There are a lot of factors that go into, let's say sustainable and positive development and one that can be reached at scale. And one of the things that I think has been pointed out or is obvious with this recent situation is fragility. And I would say fragility, particularly when it comes to rural and urban areas, but um, on gender or uh, on gender issues, it's having an absence of framework or having an absence of real programming at the policy program and um, project dialogue. And that is something that, that needs to happen. It needs to be instilled, deliberate, and um, very concerted. And I think that that wasn't in place, therefore, um, things fell apart very quickly. Thank you. Uh, Matt, let me come back to you with a, uh, a tough question, which I don't have a good answer to. And uh, I'm, if you don't either, then that's, you know, you and the rest of us, uh, is what we should have done. Because everything that we're seeing now, all of your critiques are ones I personally share, and to be honest, I personally shared in 2009 and even uh, shared much earlier than that. Uh, it should not be a surprise to anyone that the government system put in place in Afghanistan was never very effective. It was, it certainly never 
met the promises that uh, four administrations, or I'll say three, because Joe Biden uh, has been pretty forthright in, in his uh, view that we should have withdrawn many years ago before becoming president. So we certainly, can, uh, that's not to say that he's handled the withdrawal well. That's a totally different question, which uh, we can talk about in greater detail, but at least he didn't buy into the idea that everything was fine. However, uh, for someone simply watching the news, they might well think, well, you know, things were maybe not perfect, but they were pretty good and maybe the best that could be come up with. Something I've wrestled with is, yes, this is the, the system put in place has been a bad one, but what should have been done instead? So, uh, Matt, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I, I, I think we got what we created. I mean, again, we put these warlords and drug lords in power. What were you expecting? Um, and, it, and it wasn't, um, and then we lied about it. You know, I mean, so for, for most, most people outside of Afghanistan, um, the assumption is the Taliban controlled the drug trade. And that's simply not true. The Afghan government controlled the drug trade. I mean, like, he, and, it, and it was verifiable. I mean, the warlords, Golag Rashar, Zai, Muhammad Adenor, Abdul Rashid Dastum, uh, Marshal Fahim, uh, uh, Sir Muhammad Akhmazada, uh, I mean, and then Ahmed Wali Karzai, who was President Karzai's half brother, those were the drug lords of Afghanistan. And they were still the drug lords up until this year. Um, but it wasn't, you know, and, and again, this is not new. The United States has a long history of complicity with narcotics trafficking. I mean, certainly Vietnam is, a, is an easy example. After World War II, the United States, uh, the United States after World War II actually brought um, mafia leaders that they had jailed to Sicily to run Sicily after the United States uh, liberated Sicily. I mean, that was, the, that was the collusion, that was the complicity, the connection between the United States and you know, organized crime. The same thing too after the war, uh, Marseille uh, in Marseille and in other ports in France, along in Italy, the United States aligned itself with criminal networks in order to stamp out the communists. I mean, and, and there's other examples. I mean, this, this goes back to, you know, as, as you know, to, to, to um, you know, certainly East Asia and, and the opium wars, you know, and, and that's like actually an extension of how the drugs get into Afghanistan, because up until the 1980s, Afghanistan really isn't producing much of the poppy crop until um, the United States, the CIA and the Pakistani ISI, the Pakistani Intelligence Service, bring it into Afghanistan about the mid 80s to serve as a form of revenue to, for the war. Um, and so the men who benefited from that, the Mujahideen, who then uh, fought the civil war in Afghanistan in the 90s, and then there were the one men that the United States put in power, it's starting in 2001, 2002, these were the drug lords. So, you know, not to get too much on, on the drugs, but if you understand that, and you understand that that is the calm, that is not unique, that that was the way the government was structured and how the United States government lied about it, this thing was always going to be doomed. I mean, again, you were building a house of cards. It was incredibly fragile. And one after another, American turned a blind eye because the American system is corrupt. The American government is corrupt. The American, um, the foreign policy making apparatus is dominated by domestic political concerns. Um, you had a, a U.S. military that was, um, that, that, that came to be commanded by generals that were, could be described as celebrity generals. And, you know, and I'm not exaggerating. You, you look at someone like General David Petraeus. Uh, David Petraeus takes command in Mosul. 
Um, and David Petraeus, arguably the most important person in these wars uh, from the American side for the last 20 years. David Petraeus takes command of Mosul in 2003, the city of Mosul, and he says everything's going well. And when his unit leaves, the next unit comes in and finds out it wasn't going well. It was a mess. David Petraeus then takes over the training command in Iraq. And he loses about 300,000 rifles and pistols in 2004 in Iraq, right as the Civil War is really getting going, right? Plus, his training command are, is the unit that pulls all those Shia militias, those death squads, into the Iraqi police forces, right? So ordinarily, you think this would be me, but that's the way it worked. That's what, you know, you also had at the same time, the ambassador was John Negroponte, who was an American ambassador in the 80s in Central America and who took part in the death squad programs there. I mean, so you had this alignment, but to, to really, really what I'm getting at though, is that October 2004, David Petraeus writes an op-ed in either the New York Times or the Washington Post, uh, basically endorsing George Bush for president. I mean, just, just complete, makes a complete mockery of the idea of civilian control of the military, complete mockery of the, the, the military should not be involved in politics. And rather than being fired, He's continued to be promoted until he eventually becomes CIA director, right? Where he has to resign in scandal because he's caught giving secret documents to his girlfriend and lies about it. This, I mean, if you understand that, and if you understand that David Petraeus is not the exception, then you can understand how that type of mendacity that exists in the US government at decision-making levels at that level, how that then translates into policy and how you can then have a policy in Afghanistan where you're claiming that you have a democratic government but the elections are incredibly fraudulent. I mean, 2014, the elections are so fraudulent that John Kerry, the U.S. Secretary of State, has to go to Afghanistan and create like this extra constitutional uh, 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 apparatus to uh, prevent the government from completely collapsing. I and mean, when I was in Afghanistan in 2009, I was there in August in 2009 for the uh, elections then, the presidential elections then, you know, and I was on an Afghan army base and sitting in the same room as all these Afghan soldiers stuffing ballot boxes. Right. And, you know, my response, and this is the same reason that Peter Galbraith resigned about the same time as I did. Peter Galbraith was the deputy United Nations ambassador to Afghanistan. He resigned in protest in 2009. United Nations claims he quit, but Galbraith actually did resign before they fired him. I'm um, sorry, they claimed he, they fired him, but he actually did resign before they fired him. And, but Galbraith, same, you know, his thing was like, this is, you know, but the, but because that was going to go against the narrative, that couldn't be acknowledged. I mean, so there's a lot, I mean, the, the, the mendacity that, that, that allows for this house of cards to be, uh, you know, portrayed as anything other than that, it permeates at the highest levels. And then if you have a system where it fills out with men like David Petraeus or women, you know, um, like David Petraeus, I mean, I could bring up some women as well. I know who, you know, this is, this is how you get to a point right, where you now have this situation where, wait a minute, I thought we had 300,000 uh, Afghan troops. You know, I, I thought the government was fully functioning, you know, I mean, as well as too, I mean, one of the things Dr. Bott probably can talk about a lot better than I can, but uh, I think the U.S. government was paying 900, $900 million in Afghan government salaries over the last year or so and continuing to pay them. And now you're hearing from these Afghan government workers, they haven't been paid in six months. Where did that billion dollars go? I mean, that's just one example of many, but you kind of understand those details. And I think you can see the bigger picture of, you know, in hindsight, yes, I, I don't think anyone predicted it would fall this fast, but in hindsight, we can look back and say, oh yeah, maybe we should have seen this coming. 
Yes, and um, a few points here. I just uh, there's so much to discuss. I want to make sure before I forget, you know, to, that they don't get lost, and we can come back to some of these. Uh, some of the ones we'll come back to are private, are warlords, drugs, and uh, very, and well, they're all various U.S. Uh, individuals. But I want to make sure we um, we don't forget a couple of things Matt raised about specific warlords who were bad actors in the 1990s were brought back into power. And we see the same cast of characters very much on the scene today. Some of the specific individuals uh, that Matt referred to, uh, Gulaga Shirzai, for example, he was one of, for those of our audience who may not uh, be as immersed in the weeds in this, he was one of the most notorious warlords in Afghanistan in the 1990s. He had been the warlord uh, in charge of Kandahar when the Taliban took over. And one of the reasons that the Taliban were able to take over, according to uh, the, the journalist uh, Ahmed Rashid and, and others, is that under Gulag Shirzai's uh, control of Kandahar, things were so disorderly uh, that uh, there were gun battles in the street over which sub-warlord would have the right to rape um, children in Kandahar. And when the Taliban rolled in, uh, they hung these uh, sub-warlords uh, sub who had been reporting to Gulag Shirzai uh, from, the, from, the, uh, uh, from the barrels of tanks. And that obviously was fairly popular among certain people. Well, one on one of the trips I made to Kandahar, I saw people hanging uh, there. I don't don't know what they were hanging for, but um, this still was going on, as Matt notes, even during the period of American uh, occupation. What happened to Gulag Shirzai? Uh, well, he became governor of uh, Kandahar, and then he became governor of Nangahar, and. He was briefly a candidate for president of Afghanistan and had a certain amount of support. I encountered people in Helmand province who actually were supporters of his because they said, um, well, he's a, he's a good leader because he only takes 10% of the corrupt commission and lets 90% go back to the people. So that kind of was seen as, uh, that's, that's the low baseline we're talking about. Uh, what happened to him after this? Well, he is just of as of last week, he had offered his congratulations and support to the Taliban. Uh, multiply that by every warlord out there and we see some of the uh, difficulties. So now we're starting to get a lot of good questions coming in. One, um, one, one, one fun yeah. fact about Golag or Surzai, in 2009, he was an official guest of the Barack Obama um, inauguration. Um, I, mean, I mean, honestly, it's that type of, we knew this about this man. This is who I, I met him. I met him in mm -hmm. 2009. I met him a couple of times. And um, it was, you know, we just, we as in the United States chose to ignore these things um, because I, I really do think that there are a bunch of different reasons to get into, but we chose to ignore these. And again, uh, for every goal of Gershurzai, there were, you know, a bunch of other ones. Yep. And this, this gets to this overarching question of what to do, because Gulag Shirzai was in many ways seen as one of the good warlords in that he was predatory, he was brutal, he was corrupt, um, he had no uh, loyalty to anyone, but he was widely seen by both U.S. and by Afghans who I spoke to as someone who could get things done, someone you could work with. 
Uh, so there are all kinds of problems of dealing through the warlords. Another figure that Matt referred to, um, Ahmed Wali Karzai, uh, the brother or half-brother of Hamid Karzai, was the, uh, the warlord in charge of, uh, of Kandahar. He was thoroughly um, in control of the drug trade and lots of other rackets going on. But he was, and he was opposed by the US military, but supported by various other parts of the US government. Uh, you can probably take your guess about who I'm referring to. So there was a, a, a really series of mixed messages being sent to the Afghan people when you had, for example, when I would staff a meeting uh, where uh, John Kerry was banging on Hamid Karzai to bring uh, Ahmed Wali Karzai under control while other branches of the US government were sending a completely different message. Um, so it, it becomes very confusing, but Ahmed Wali Karzai was seen as someone who could get things done, that if you needed something done in Kandahar, that was the guy you go to. So that kind of raises this question and maybe our panelists can have any thoughts on this. I, I profess myself to be <laughs> clueless on some of this, when all of the choices are bad, uh, is there something other than just don't be there at all or be there but do it better? Nina, do you have, do you have any thoughts on this? It's a, it's, a, it, it's a question I don't have a good answer to, so don't feel as if you have to uh, give a, a solution to a question that nobody actually can answer. No, thank you, Jonah. I must confess that this area of air expertise is not mine, uh, of warlords and drugs, et cetera. So let me pass on back to you or to Matt. So thanks. Okay. Matt, yes, I know that, uh, Matt, I know that part of your answer will be we should not be there at all. But if the US is going to be there, and I would say that after 9-11, it was guaranteed that any US political leader would have been involved in mm -hmm. Afghanistan to some degree or other. And uh, for my part of it, I can confess that I, I was providing advice to then Senator Biden that we should have actual Americans on the ground that should not be simply drop a bunch of bombs and leave because that strategy first would have been ineffective. It would not have done anything about Al Qaeda. And second, it just would have killed a lot of innocent civilians without actually achieving anything positive. But we can talk about whether that was the right decision or not. But if one, if the US is going to be involved in Afghanistan, what choices were there? And again, I'm not saying that we made the right yeah. choices, um, but if one is choosing among terrible choices, which less terrible choices could have been made? Um. You know, I, I think some of it is we have it in American commentary and, and, in, and in decision making, there seems to be such a just a, a simplistic, you know, binary approach to this, either bomb them or abandon them, that there's no in between, you know, um, and there is, you know, and certainly we can, United States, and if this is the problem, the United States finds itself, it finds itself, the United States finds it hard to be someplace without using its military. And this is a whole other discussion, but you know, I mean, and certainly too, you see the militarization of even things like development. Um, I mean, the, the Department of Defense, their doctrine is money as a weapon system. You know, I mean, so and then it becomes, I think, as Dr. Bob was saying, you know, you're spending money just for the sake of spending money. 
because that's that's the metric is how much money do you spend and then of course if folks are familiar with how institutions and organizations work if dr bot was there before me um right and dr bot spent uh 10 million dollars then to prove that i am doing my job i have to spend 15 million dollars and then when jonah comes in when dr blank comes in he's got to spend 20 million dollars and i mean you just have this i think that's an issue with any institution right whether it's the u.s military or coca-cola um so I, I think you have those th that as well, but this this idea that there is there was only one thing to do, and I am sympathetic to President Bush, um, and um, I know there are Taliban who are sympathetic to President Bush as well. I was on a discussion with Mullah Zaif, who uh, Zaif had been the um, Taliban minister to Pakistan, the ambassador of Pakistan, and Zaif said that in the fall of '01, when when this was happening. Um, you know, because we were talking about how, you know, well, the West doesn't really understand Afghanistan. He said, well, I tell you what, the Taliban don't understand the West. He said the Taliban leadership just had no idea. They could not appreciate the political pressure that George Bush was under, that there was that the fact that Bush was able to wait basically a month before he even started blame, attacking Afghanistan was really quite something because the United States doesn't launch airstrikes until about October 7th or so, I think. So it's almost a month. Um, and Zaif said his, his, his people, the Taliban leadership, did not get that. They just did not understand that the United States president would have these types of political pressures because their understanding of the West is very similar to our understanding of Afghanistan. It, it's, it's very, um, it's, it's sloppy, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's not very thorough. Uh, it's a lot based on a lot of romanticism or, or you know, uh, now it's based upon what you read on a Twitter or on Facebook, right? I mean, so. Um, I, I think there's a lot of things that could have been done differently. I mean, certainly the idea of, of Al-Qaeda, um, look, according to the American FBI, Al-Qaeda was 400 people strong total around the world on 9-11, 400, at most 400, according to the American FBI. And I mean, so the idea that looking back in hindsight that you're going to invade and occupy a country the size of Texas, that's you know, 250,000 square miles to go after 400 people, and most of them not even in Afghanistan, you know, in hindsight, you say that that's insane. But I think, again, to your point, Jonah, about the what could have been done at the time with the real political pressure. Um, yeah, it is. Um, but I, I think, too, you know, you have to look at who who is populating the American White House, the American um, uh, State Department, the Defense Department. Um, in, in the Bush administration, especially the first, first half of that administration. And these were men and women who were um, neo, what we call neoconservatives. Uh, many of them had signed something called the Project for New American Century, and they believed in um, expanding the American empire by force, if necessary, in order to maintain American security, but also, too, to bring up uh, the rest of the world to you know, a, a standard uh, that only the West could deliver in other countries. And I mean, you certainly see this in, in, in men like Paul Wolfowitz or Zalmay Khalazad. Um, I don't believe, um, you know, there, there are others who weren't so, I mean, I don't believe Condi Rice was in that. But you certainly see that. And I think your best, it's best exemplified by the book in the 1990s that I know, Jonah, you'll certainly remember uh, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, right? Which asserts that um, basically there are no more choices to be made that Western democracy, uh, uh, Western liberalism, that is the apex. There's no more choices to be made about what to, do, what to do because we've reached the end of history. There's nothing more to come. And that book, I think, accurately reflects 
the thinking of the people in power, especially in the first half of the Bush administration. You know, that, that the, the, I think it's, it's where you can say Afghanistan, United States basically kind of accidentally, not accidentally, but it's an event that occurs and it kind of pulls the United States into it. And once the United States is in it, it makes these decisions that uh, escalates things and, and uh, widens things. But certainly I think Iraq is a great example of this type of, of, of expansion of the empire, right? What, for geopolitical reasons, as well as because of American exceptionalism. And if you understand that, again, you, understand, you can never put, I, I think we tend to not want to think that four or five individuals in a room have as much power as they do, you know, or certainly the power of ideas that we don't agree with can have, and, and it certainly can. So I think that's what, you know, rather than trying to figure out what could have been done differently, I think it's better for us to understand how they arrived at the decisions they did and understanding their background, their ideology, um, as well as to their relationship to uh, corporate interests, their relationship to uh, uh, other nations. As, and also, you have to remember that um, many of these people who are in power have been in power, not just with the Reagan administration, but with the Ford and Nixon administration. I mean, the one time I met, Don, the one time Don Rumsfeld ever spoke to me when I was in the Pentagon, I was standing in front of a portrait of Dwight Eisenhower. Me and my friend were just standing there and, and Rumsfeld comes up to us and, he says, you know how old I am? And he points at the, po the, the portrait of Eisenhower. He says, I'm so old, I used to work with that guy. And we have to remember that Rumsfeld was the Secretary of Defense in 1975, the same year that the Vietnam War uh, ended, right? I mean, so the, the, the things that happened in the past are still with us. So I think we have to understand that as well in terms of how decisions are being made. But in terms of what could have been done differently, absolutely, you could have had a much more inclusive political process, we could have accepted the surrender of the Taliban, we could have recognized that the Taliban are, um, you know, Al-Qaeda was basically using Afghanistan as a hotel, that the relationship between the, them and the Taliban were not, you know, very, very difficult to discern. But I mean, so you could have had a narrower focus. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different things. And certainly uh, agreeing to negotiate with the Taliban this, was, which is one of the other reasons I resigned, because the United States refused to talk to the Taliban all throughout. I mean, in 2009, I had Taliban, I, we had Taliban or, or their interlocutors come to us both in the East and in the South of Afghanistan and want to talk. And we were told, no, I mean, basically victory is what we're here for. You know, so there are a lot of different, I, I think that what we just saw this past month or, or last month now was inevitable as long as victory was the, 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 the path that was pursued. As long as military victory was the goal, this was inevitable, but certainly it was not inevitable. And the fact that, you know, 90% of Afghans live on less than $2 a day now after 20 years of this, that was not inevitable as well. If you didn't have this war, I think most Afghans would have been, would not be suffering the way they are now. Thanks. There, uh, <clears throat> there are now some uh, number of questions coming in. So thank you all for that. Keep them coming in. What I will do is try to um, lump questions together that are fairly similar and paraphrase them uh, as needed and uh, try to kind of get as many of the questions um, thematically linked together as possible. So please keep sending them in. Uh, got a, a several questions uh, for, uh, for Nina that I will sort of package together uh, where they overlap. Uh, it, um, 
part of the theme is dealing with international development projects and the uh, this gets also to Matt's point about income about inputs versus outputs. Uh, so uh, we've had uh, billions of dollars coming in from the United States, from international financial institutions, from a variety of donors. And uh, with all of this money flowing in, obviously a lot of it gets filtered off to corruption, but a fair amount at least does have some sort of impact on the ground. So one part of the question, I'll let you decide how you wish to either combine them or take one or the other. One part of the question is, how you uh, see the impact of these different projects funded by external donors. Are they, have they had a beneficial impact? Is it all just a source of corruption? Um, or, you know, what has really been achieved? And the second part, so that you can sort of uh, decide which of these you want to address if, or both, is uh, a generational question. A whole generation of Afghans now have grown up in a very different world than their parents. Uh, whether it's better, whether it's worse is not really what the questioner is asking, but that the, the rapid infusion of billions of dollars has changed Afghanistan and there have been winners and losers and some of the winners have been in cities that you know, Kabul in 2021 looks nothing like Kabul uh, early 2002 when I first saw it. And that's a whole generation of Afghans who um, have in many ways benefited from this international engagement. Uh, what is their attitude going to be this generation that um, really never knew what uh, life was like either during the civil war years or during the Taliban years? So, uh, Nina, I'll let you sort of decide how you'd like to address these questions, the impact of development, whether to speak about the, the actual on the ground impact it has had or about the generational question. And feel free to address both if you wish. No, I mean, thank you very much. And thank you to those who've been uh, putting the questions in. I appreciate it very much. In terms of international development aid, I think that its value cannot be underscored or you know, uh, just, just be made, uh, its relevance cannot be underscored sufficiently enough. One of the things that I've seen um, as um, in my capacity as a development specialist or the value added is that we provide a framework for engagement. You know, we provide a framework for engagement at the macro level, at the national levels, and we hope that that filters down. I think that in the case of Afghanistan, you know, we were, um, the country was especially lucky in having someone such as Rula Ghani um, really kind of serve as a symbol and as a real force for gender and development. And um, having persons such as her is very important for uh, policy dialogue and to serve as a beacon of light. I think that at least, you know, in our case with the World Bank, we always work as partners with other institutions. We have bilateral donors and we make sure that our conversations are in synergy with each other. And our programming has been at the local level. And there's a lot of programs on local services delivery, whether it's health, whether it's education um, and whatnot. And one of the programs that I wanted to mention, and these tend to have tremendous impact is at the local, you have CDD programs, which are community driven development programs, which are, which is an important cohering force for 
building trust, building solidarity, especially in states that are conflict or post-conflict. So one of the examples that we have is a national solidarity program that's nationwide. And these CDD programs, again, as I mentioned, are very important in terms of bringing community to, communities together, but also being in the driver's seat in terms of deciding what programs they wish to have that's of relevance to them. So um, again, I am somebody who is very much of a proponent of international aid or international development engagement, and I'm happy to provide more details if needed. Thank you, Jonah, and back to you. Okay, thank you. Um, we have a, 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 a question that takes this issue of international engagement, international non-governmental um, assistance in a very different direction to a, a question to Matt. The question uh, come, uh, says, and I'm not using the questioner's names uh, just because in some cases, I'm not sure whether they uh, want to be identified or not. Uh, so if you do want to be identified and I'm not mentioning your name, then uh, apologies uh, for that. Uh, the question of contractors, uh, and this is something I think that gets a little bit uh, less attention than perhaps it should. The question is, as uh, the question says, as a, as a former soldier, but uh, as Matt will know, uh, no Marine likes to be identified as a soldier. They, uh, but uh, as, a, uh, as, a former, as a former Marine, how do, you see the, um, how do you see the impact of private military contractors in Afghanistan? And I'll just provide a, a bit of context before I ask Matt to comment. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with the ins and outs of uh, how things operate in Afghanistan or did until a few weeks ago. In addition to both US and international military troops, there were many thousands. I believe the most current number was 17,000, although anyone who has a better number can correct me, uh, private contractors working for the government of Afghanistan and working for US militaries. Uh, to provide a range of services, um, everything from maintaining helicopters to operating different weapon systems. Um, I've many times in Afghanistan been, uh, been driven from one place to another, been protected by guys who to all intents and purposes look like US soldiers. They're wearing the full battle rattle and they've got you know, to external eyes, they would look exactly the same, but they're in fact private contractors. Uh, we're all familiar, or many of us are familiar with groups like DynCorp, groups like Blackwater, which has gone through several name changes. We've seen a lot of the downside of this uh, because they are often not held accountable to the same standards that uh, US military and other militaries should at least in theory be held accountable. However, on the flip side, it would simply be impossible for the government of Afghanistan to have maintained a 21st century high-tech army without the technicians necessary to keep the helicopters flying. I mean, I can't maintain a helicopter, nor can most of the people in the government of Afghanistan. It relies on either uh, foreign military or foreign contractors. And part of the Doha agreement <clears throat> Part of the reason that the government of Afghanistan could not survive, in my view, is that uh, under um, Donald Trump's uh, negotiation, 
all of these contractors were forced to leave Afghanistan as well as the military. So uh, let, there are a lot of sides of this contractor conflict because obviously there have been many abuses, particularly when contractors have been involved in combat. Let's for the moment set aside that because in many ways that's an easier question. I think most observers would have little difficulty saying that private contractors shouldn't be shooting and killing people. Let's talk about the more difficult side of that. Uh, private contractors keeping helicopters flying. Um, and let me toss that over to Matt. Uh, and feel free to get into the, the about contractors killing people too. But let's also focus on whether the government of Afghanistan or any government in Afghanistan could have maintained a high-tech 21st century military, the one constructed by the US without the input of contractors? Well, the US military can't survive with contractors anymore. Um, US, naval, US Navy ships go out <laughs> to sea with contractors aboard them because uh, the contractors are the only ones who are able to maintain some of those systems. Uh, the US Air Force needs contractors for its fighter planes and its bomber planes because again, the, the, the technology um, requires the contractors, but it's also become a way for the contractors to uh, broaden their involvement, right? So they build these aircraft and these aircraft, the contract, the purchase contract comes with stipulations that contractors will be utilized. I mean, it, it's one of, the, one of the reasons why the export of weapons, say the export of the F-35 is such a cash cow because the F-35, of course, is about 75 or $80 million a plane. Um, but what also comes with that is all the maintenance, all the, uh, uh, all the, all, all the uh, upkeep and repair and everything else um, that is required. And for that, you need the contractors as well. Uh, so that if the United States sells F-35s to say um, the United Arab Emirates or, 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 or Qatar, uh, the United, part of that, part of that sale contract is that American contractors, or at least the companies, will be involved in the maintenance and upkeep of these aircraft for the life of the aircraft. And it's say, not just other countries, but the United States military has these same requirements. Um, and this really starts about in the 1990s. This, this, this really begins um, as you start to see, uh, you know, under President Clinton, there's a, there's a promise to, to reduce government. And, and President Clinton does. President Clinton uh, bring, shrinks the size of the United States government by quite a bit, not just in the, on the military side, but all throughout the federal government. And, and one of the things is outsourcing, uh, you know, bringing these private contractors. So the time, by the time I get to the Pentagon in 2002, um, these civil servants who are working in the Pentagon, uh, all types of jobs, you know, all kinds of different jobs, they all have to, honestly, they all have to fill out a document to, a state, stating why their job needs to be done by a government employee and cannot be done by a contractor. Uh, the lady who was working in the office I worked at, who was basically kind of our office manager and who ran the whole place, you know, um, she had been there for 20 years and she had to fill out this form saying why she should not be replaced by a contractor. Like, I mean, like that's, that's the, that's the, the um, and if you remember with Donald Rumsfeld and his transformation of the Defense Department, you know, so a lot of this comes from that, that we're going to, United States is going to um, privatize a lot of government functions, which is a neoliberal thing, right? Uh, but also to privatize a lot of the military functions. You see a lot of it happen in the Balkans, uh, it, you know, in the, the Kosovo and Serbian wars. Uh, but then it, as the Afghan and Iraq wars begin, 
when, when, like when the Iraq war begins and, and, and before 2005, 2006 in Afghanistan, the ratio of soldiers to contractors is basically at one to, to half, you know, so one to 0.5. Every soldier is about 0.5 contractors. By the time 2009, 2010 come about, that ratio is about one to one. So when um, in 2011, at the height of American uh, involvement in Afghanistan, um, you have 100,000 American troops, you have 40,000 NATO troops, and you have more than 100,000 contractors, which gives you a quarter million man army, right? I mean, like, that's how big, I don't think people remember how much of a presence the United States has, but the contractors so often don't count, right? So that makes it seem like the war is smaller. That makes it seem like a lot of costs are hidden. And certainly casualties are another aspect of it, which I will get to in a second. But now, Joni, you, uh, you work with, when in, in recent, in this past year, when there were only 2,500 American troops, there were about 17 or 18,000 contractors. Um, and you, so you've seen basically um, over the last several years, that ratio of, of, of soldier to contractor, which was one to a half of one, that went to one to one, has now reached one to seven or eight. Every, for every soldier is about seven or so contractors uh, being utilized. And what that does is a number of different things. One of that, one of those things is, um, you know, hide the cost of it, hide the hide the physical cost, the the the, the blood cost of it. Um, it's well known that the United States lost seven thousand men and women fighting in these wars, but that's not the right number. The correct number is fifteen thousand because eight thousand contractors were killed in Iraq and Afghanistan, and every one of those contractors was doing a job that in a previous war they would have been wearing a military uniform. So rather than the American public understanding the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as being 7,000 dead, it's 15,000 dead, right? And there's all other ways too that, that contractors, um, you, can, you can do things through contractors that don't allow for government oversight. In the United States, we have what's called a Freedom of Information Act request, which is you can basically fill out a form, it goes to the government, and as long as that, as long as not some type of, of, of criminal or privacy reason or national security reason, the information should be released to you. Contractors don't have that. You have to get a court to subpoena them to get the information. And of course, how do you do that? You don't have standing to ask for that. You're not directly involved. So it's a really great way to hide the size, the scope, the cost of these wars to use contractors. Um, but absolutely, the, the idea that somehow, and that's why this, you know, the Taliban flying around those helicopters they captured and everything, they could do that for a little while, but in a, in a few weeks time, if they don't have the contractors from Boeing there or wherever, those things aren't gonna keep flying. That, act, that point actually, Matt, is one we just got a few questions in and you, you've already basically answered it, but I think it's an important one for people to understand. We've had a few questions uh, about the impact of the enormous amount of US military equipment that has been left behind and it falling into the Taliban hands. There's been a lot of deceptive or misleading um, reporting in the news about how the Taliban are now one of the most uh, advanced uh, military equipment in the, in the, uh, of any armed military in the world, simply because of what they've captured from Afghanistan. But without either military or contractors to keep the, this equipment running, it's just junk. Um, you know, you, know um, you can't fly a Black Hawk helicopter unless you can maintain it, and you can't maintain it without a lot of training. So maybe uh, just because we've had a few questions about that, how concerned should 
people be that the Taliban is now a modern 21st century military. Maybe you could just uh, briefly explain uh, why that perhaps is a rather misleading way of looking at it. Yeah, absolutely no. You should have no concern. I mean, first of all, the Taliban aren't going anyplace. I mean, where are they going to drive to? You know, uh, and the other thing is that um, all that, it's funny because I have seen some of the same reports in the United States and they talked about, because uh, the Taliban staged a big victory parade in Kandahar, you know, and they had all these vehicles and they had a helicopter flying. And pretty much all those vehicles and helicopters are about 40 years old. Uh, American Humvees and the Black Hawk helicopters, they've been around since like the early 80s. So this is not cutting edge equipment by any means, pretty basic. I'm not sure where the Taliban are gonna go. Certainly it does allow them to be more powerful in, within their own country though. So in terms of consolidating power, in terms of having more equipment to have a more mobile uh, force, a military force, absolutely. But in terms of danger to the West or anything like that, no, no, not at all. Well, well also, I think it's important to, um, to keep perspective on this, that I, I at least am very doubtful that the Taliban will be able to be using any of the 40-year-old equipment if it's more high-tech. Um, I doubt they're really going to be able to keep helicopters flying, keep planes flying. After all, remember, in the 1990s, the Taliban did have an air force. They had inherited it from the Soviet, uh, from uh, the Soviet airframes that were uh, in Afghanistan at the time, but they couldn't use it because they had nobody to maintain it. Uh, I mean, they, they were able occasionally just for PR reasons to get a plane in the air and then land it, but you know that was about the extent of it. I suspect we're gonna see the same thing now unless they succeed in bringing in contractors of their own, which they might be able to do. For example, from a company, from a country right next door to Afghanistan, which is uh, quite skilled in maintaining at least some US air, uh, military assets, but uh, that's a, uh, a question we can get back to if the audience wishes. I want to now, though, get back to something that somewhat we've had a few questions that I'll lump together. And this is one that both Nina and Matt can respond to. Uh, it deals with uh, the issue of narcotics and how that affects the economy of Afghanistan and people's livelihoods, because this is a tremendously um, difficult question, like all questions in Afghanistan. Obviously, nobody wants to have a, a national economy that is predominantly focused on something illegal, uh, narcotics. Uh, the, you know, the, the fact that uh, one of the only uh, reliable cash crops in Afghanistan is opium. Uh, why does the Taliban tax this because that's where the money is. Why do warlords tax this? Because that's where the money is. Why do Afghan farmers farm this? Because that's what they can farm. Uh, this was something I wrestled with in government when uh, the US government uh, launched a, an intensive anti-narcotics effort and a crop eradication program in Helmand and else, elsewhere. And I very much opposed this. My argument was, um, we, we shouldn't be taking the livelihoods away from Afghan farmers when this doesn't actually affect the warlords of the Taliban. It just drives the price of opium up and they're collecting the same amount of money, but the, the farmers then uh, are, uh, have nothing to farm. And in many cases, they have to pay the same taxes 
to the Taliban or the warlords anyway. They're taxed on how much opium their land could produce if they were producing opium. So if we, if we both um, take away their livelihood and don't provide them the security so that they don't have to pay these taxes, we're sort of hitting them from two angles. So again, a terribly difficult question that I'll toss back to our panelists. Um, you know, Nina, I'll ask you first, and uh, again, I won't ask for a uh, for a a solution to a problem that nobody has been able to solve. But what is a better way of getting livelihoods or encouraging, facilitating livelihoods for Afghan farmers when the most um, uh, effective way to use their land is a way that is both illegal and dangerous and could potentially uh, be uh, wiped out by, by the air if there were a government that decided it wanted to do that. Right, no, thank you very much. And I will say that since I don't work for a drugs and development agency, my, my, my uh, knowledge of this area is very poor. I think that you highlighted the issues very well, the livelihoods impact, economic in impacts, their security impacts and issues. Um, there's also a Southeast Asia dimension of transitions back and forth of drugs, you know, which um, wasn't mentioned just now. But again, I'm not a subject area, I'm subject expert in this area. So I will hand back over to you. Thank you. Okay. And, and Matt, you've, you've seen how this, uh, Matt, you've seen how this whole issue of narcotics plays out on the ground. Uh, the same dynamic that I've described, you've actually seen it in practice. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts about what to do when you don't want to have a narco state, but you also don't want to deprive farmers of the only crop that they can sell? Yeah, I mean, and again, it's compounded by the fact that we have this narrative that's basically a lie about it, right? That we're denying that the government is the one basically controlling this. Um, and so when you're at, when you, I think this is one of the fundamental problems you have, when you have policies that are, are fundamentally untrue, that, that are based upon lies, that ignore the actual truth, how are you going to, right? If, if you say that if you're going to spend $10 billion in Afghanistan, like the United States did, trying to counter narcotics, and you are making pretend that it's not the people you have in power who are controlling this drug trade, how are you going to do anything other than waste that $10 billion? As well as for the fact, Jonah, that you brought up, yeah, the drug trade is, is, is the narcotics, the poppies, are literally the only industry uh, in Afghanistan. I mean, there, I mean, there is, um, in terms of national industry, there is not much else. There's some gem trading, there's some timber trading. Um, Afghanistan has so been so devastated by war for these 40 years that uh, it, can, it doesn't produce uh, it could barely produce enough food to feed itself. And in many cases, it doesn't. They've had, they have, they're the second most food insecure nation in the world after the Congo. I mean, they're the second most, they, they, they're at this point now, um, people are talking about economic collapse in Afghanistan. It's already collapsed economically. The, the danger is it's going to get worse. You know what I mean? So, and that's one of the decisions for the Taliban is that when you have a nation that, you know, I said earlier, 90% live on $2 a day, well, actually 70% live under a dollar a day. Not $2 a day is the, the poverty line for Afghanistan. $2 American, $2, two American dollars a day is the poverty line. 70% of the country lives on less than a dollar a day. So you're talking about subsistence living. And when millions and millions, as you mentioned, of people survive on that, uh, uh, in, on that one industry, as well as that one industry is, is roughly half the GDP of Afghanistan, 
um, what do you, how do you, how do you eliminate that? You're, so the Taliban who, when they were in power by 2001, they had basically reduced um, uh, Afghanistan's export of, of opiates to, it was negligible. I mean, not statistically significant. Um, I mean, so, you know, that's what they have said they want to do, but how can they do that? I mean, if you do that, and as well as you have these issues that you're seeing right now, where the World Health Organization says they have got less than a week's worth of medicine in the country, World Food Program says it's less than a month of food in the country, uh, you know, there's no, uh, there's no money coming in, uh, not certain what the West is going to do and the IMF and World Bank are going to do in terms of money uh, going into Afghanistan. The United States has frozen about $10 billion of Afghanistan's money. You know, I mean, so the Taliban are a very precarious position. And if they do go through on eradicating the crop again, as they did 20 years ago, what will happen? And, and it is, it, it's very difficult. I mean, I think the clear thing is don't be involved with the drug lords, you know, but you have this, um, you know, and, and this is the thing too, where if people struggle for how do these wars connect back home, um, and I'm not sure of what's happening in Singapore, but I imagine maybe it's the same as in most of the rest of the world, where there has been an opioid epidemic. Uh, you know, in the United States last year, we had 90,000 deaths from overdose, uh, and about 55,000 of those were from opiates. Um, I mean, so there is a very real connection. You know, it's just not a, a coincidence that Afghanistan goes from producing uh, almost none of the world's uh, opiates to producing between 80 and 90% of it at the same time as there's this worldwide explosion in opiate use that also includes a, tr a complete tragedy where millions of people, millions of people and their families are, 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 are being devastated by. So if people are, are struggling to find a way to connect how these wars impact us at home. But I mean, I, I think the main thing is don't lie about it. Don't pretend that we, you know, if you went to a border crossing in Afghanistan, there are tanker trucks lined up as far as you can see because what you need to process the poppies into heroin or, or I guess now into fentanyl um, is you need these, these chemicals. If you go to any of the border crossings in Iran or in Pakistan, particularly out of Iran, there are these, these tanker trucks for as far as you can see with all these chemicals in it. So the fact that you're lying about it, how can you have any type of, of policy if you can't even speak honestly about the problem? Um, you know, and so it is, it, it, it's, it's a very difficult situation. The United States went through a series of, of, um, of, of different policies. Uh, there's actually an American Marine. She wrote uh, an essay about how during her two deployments to Afghanistan, the drug policy changed three times, where the first time they were told to eradicate the fields, the second time they were told to actually you know, not eradicate the fields and actually give fertilizer to the farmers, right? And then the third time they were, it was like, okay, we're going to eradicate them again. Yeah, I mean, so like there, you know, not only that, you don't even have a consistent policy. Um, so it is, it, it's, it's, I don't know what can be done. I mean, you have the same issues with the United States in, in say South America, where Colombia has been a very close uh, uh, client state of the United States. I won't even describe it as an ally. But you know you have the, the situation in Colombia, where Colombia has been a narco state for decades. The United States' own Drug Enforcement Agency says so, and we still pretend like it's not happening. United States, same in Honduras. Uh, you know, right now with Hernandez and Honduras, uh, or you know, go back to Noriega and Panama. So again, the collusion between the United States government in its attempts to um, maintain power, uh, have influence, manipulate things with an ends justify the means approach means that you actually end up helping or assisting 
these types of uh, illicit industries. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't help that it is, as you said, Jonah, the only industry in Afghanistan. So what do you do? Um, and, and that's, I, I think, a very real problem going forward. And I don't, I don't envy the Taliban for the position they're in right now. Yeah, this, this actually you know, um, leads to uh, a, a bigger question uh, of just what is the economy uh, supposed to look like? What are people's livelihoods supposed to look like? What can the outside world do? What should the outside world do? Uh, because all of these questions are sort of wrapped up together that if the only industry is the drug trade, then of course that's what people will do because you, people have to eat. But um, why is that the only industry? After all, uh, Afghanistan has not had a, a narco economy for most of its history. Uh, it only became a narco economy really in the 1990s. There had been um, uh, both opium and uh, uh, marijuana grown in the past, but only, you know, it, it, it never dominated the economy. Uh, it was outside influences, basically outside demand. You know, I don't want to kind of say that it was pushed upon uh, Afghanistan uh, as a you know, some sort of a program, but, you know, uh, one of the laws of economics is that, uh, you know, uh, supply and demand uh, do tend to, uh, uh, do tend to balance. So from a development perspective, and, you know, perhaps Nina will be able to provide a perspective here. Um, how can the outside world, uh, how can Afghanistan's well-wishers uh, help Afghanistan develop a healthier economy, a healthier set of livelihoods, um, when we've sort of seen over the past two decades, basically either a rentier state, you know, uh, a, a government that is simply propped up by international contributions, which is not sustainable, uh, and which leads to massive corruption and doesn't really help the people themselves, or a narco state, which is what has developed either uh, with the, certainly under the U.S. Uh, 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 no, under the noses of the U.S. Uh, 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 structure, uh, and often aided and abetted by collaboration with uh, with drug lords, uh, which also um, provides people enough to live, perhaps, but definitely feeds a lot of the. Uh, dysfunctions and feeds the uh, the gender dysfunctions as well because anything that supports a warlord economy it supports a a uh, a social structure that is by its very nature um, not good for women and girls you know they're the only counter argument one could present perhaps was there was a female warlord in uh, Bamiyan uh, she's now she's now dead uh, but. Um, and in all fairness, uh, she had been just as brutal as her male, male counterparts uh, and had not been a, uh, a model of female empowerment even within uh, her own community. She just happened to be a woman who was a warlord. Um, so as long as you have a, uh, you know, a narco economy that also is going to, to feed exactly the same gender and uh, social dysfunctions, but uh, how does one transition? to a healthier uh, development mix. And again, uh, I offer this with the asterisk that nobody has come up with a, uh, a solution. So I'm not uh, asking you to uh, come up with a solution either. 
merely for maybe thoughts on how we should be thinking, some thoughts on how we should be thinking about this question. Nina. No, sure. I mean, I think it's a very difficult question of how international aid agencies will engage. I mean, obviously, the programs have ceased for now. We don't know when they will be revitalized again, but I can tell you that some of the elements that aid agencies will be looking for are, are institutions in place that are credible and viable? Is there willingness? Are there sufficient champions to implement programs? And very importantly for us would be how are the governance systems in place? Because we're talking about channeling of funds. So we need to make sure that the fiduciary responsibility and the fiduciary capacity is in place. Now, in terms of looking at conflict or post-conflict countries, depending on the severity of, of, of the situation on the ground, you know, we can take Yemen as one, one end of the spectrum, is, you know, we typically have different modes of engagement or different modalities, you know, where it's not, whether it's a watching brief from the outside or going into the assessment mode, or can we start engaging across different sectors. Um, in, in, in our situation, we look very closely to what other agencies are doing. So there's a lot of dialogue between organizations such as the ADB, for instance, or the IMF. So I think in Afghanistan for now, it's going to be watch and see mode in terms of what the engagement looks like. And we don't know what the short-term engagement is going to look like. Great. Now we've got a few questions that are lumped together uh, that, uh, that ask about it, it sort of comes from this issue of development and bleeds into the area of impact on the region. Uh, some of the questions deal with uh, the reports of lots of mineral wealth in Afghanistan and uh, other uh, possibilities for Chinese and Russian in engagement and investment. And some of the other angles of these questions are what China and Russia will be um, getting out of Afghanistan. I'll, I'll put those together and I'll sort of add uh, about how this affects the people of Afghanistan themselves, because the geopolitical question is interesting, but I think more importantly is we've seen what happens when the US is in the lead, and we've seen what happens when the Soviet Union was in the lead back in the 1980s. We've seen what happens when nobody is in the lead during the 1990s or when Pakistan, uh, UAE, Saudi Arabia are in the lead. So we've got a, a variety of uh, models of what happens when um, one of the two big superpowers is sort of calling the shots or when a neighboring power that has its own interests is calling the shots or trying to or when nobody and no external power is calling the shots, but just leaving the Afghans to pick up the pieces from previous um, external events. Now we've got the prospect of uh, different players coming in, of China coming in, of perhaps some of the Central Asian republics, of a, of a wider coalition, India, for example, which could potentially step up its involvement. Personally, I'm doubtful that any of these really will uh, will really step up and and get more uh, deeply involved. But how do both of you see the prospect of new players influencing it, this, and whether and what impact that will have on the Afghan people themselves? I mean, should the outside world should we be rooting for new players coming in, 
or should we be rooting essentially for everybody just staying out? I'll you, hand you know, over to Matt. Why don't you start first. and then, oh, okay. Matt. I mean, my vote would be for people to stay out. I mean, to be engaged, to be involved, to assist, but let the Afghans do it themselves. I mean, certainly from the American perspective, I mean, 40 plus years of what can most politely be called inept meddling in Afghanistan has brought us to this point. And I think this is the, the one of the, uh, to make the tragedy of what has occurred to the Afghan people even more tragic, so much of what has occurred to the Afghan people has got nothing to do with the Afghan people. I mean, the United States was involved in Afghanistan in the 70s, late 70s and the 80s, uh, you know, in order to give the Soviet Union its own Vietnam. It had nothing to do with the Afghans. This happened to be a convenient proxy war for the Americans, you know, and then the same thing too, these last 20 years has been about Al Qaeda or, you know, sir, I remember you and Jonah, Jonah you, when you and I used to talk, it was all about Pakistan, 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 right? I mean, you know, and then now you hear it, certainly people talking in the United States about, it's about, we got to be there because of Iran or now more because China is going to come in. So, you know, my, that would be my thing is, is allow the Afghan people to, to, um, to, lead their own country, you know, and it may not be ugly. It may not look the way we want it to look. It may, um, I mean, but certainly you can't look at the last 40 plus years and think we've done a benefit to the Afghan people by trying to lead them. Um, so that would be my vote is for to stay, stay out of it, you know, basically kind of allow Afghanistan to, this, to declare how it wants to govern itself, or at least how it wants to have relations with other nations. Um, you know, and I would hope maybe say the Afghans would choose to be a neutral country, say, and then respect that neutrality. And, you know, I mean, assistance, but no meddling, manipulation, influence. And I think that would have to be enforced uh, by other, uh, by some uh, power like the United Nations uh, to allow Afghanistan to have its neutrality and have its sovereignty, because there certainly are. I mean, I, I know there are people in Washington, D.C. right now who are looking at Afghanistan and they are saying, Look, it's just like it was September 11, 2001. The Taliban control most of the country. Uh, there are some warlords who are holding out. You know, we did it once. Uh, we did it back in 2001. We could do it again. And, you know, in the great spirit of American empire, we can do it better this time. You know, I mean, so there is that real danger as well as other nations who want to uh, manipulate and control. So my vote would be to, of course, let them be and let them, let them lead themselves. Yeah, this... This gets to, a, uh, to another thorny question of when we say let the Afghans decide, um, it, it puts up, uh, putting on my, my anthropologist hat here, it puts up the, uh, this, the, uh, the thorny question of which Afghans and how do they decide? Uh, it would be wonderful in my view if we could simply uh, have a free and fair election where every Afghan were able to participate and the, uh, the result of that election would determine the future. But that doesn't look anything like any, um, any, anything that has happened ever in Afghan history. Uh, definitely not anything like what has happened under US occupation. And in fairness, not like anything that happened prior to US occupation. And sometimes when we think of, well, the we just let's just go back to the status quo ante. Just let the Afghan voices speak. We have to be aware that those Afghan voices that are heard, or at least those that that are in command, are they represent at most half of the Afghan population because 
the Afghan women's voices very seldom actually uh, have a role in at least um, 1990s Afghanistan, 1980s Afghanistan, not a whole lot in prior to that either. And we have to avoid falling into the trap of assuming that the warlords who are the are the legitimate voices of the Afghan people. Warlords are a, um, they're really an outgrowth of the dysfunctions of the, the Soviet period, the US response to that, the Pakistani response to that. You know, Gulag Ashirzai is not a, uh, you know, he doesn't have popular legitimacy. Um, Marshal Dostum doesn't have popular legitimacy. Uh, you know, Atta Muhammad Noor uh, doesn't have popular legitimacy, except among the people for whom they're seen as the least bad of alternate options. So I don't have a good answer to this question of how we, how the outside world can do anything, if there is anything the outside world can do to actually empower all of the Afghan people, rather than just those who who have the guns or have the money or you know have the uh, have the attention of the world stage. Um, Nina, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, knowing again that uh, I don't think I at least don't have an answer to this, but how we should think about this? Well, I certainly don't have an answer, and to be frank with you, I don't know how anyone can because the situation is so fast. It's fast moving. We don't know what the new Taliban government is going to be like. You know, we're hearing a certain rhetoric from them, but we don't know how that rhetoric is going to materialize. So, I mean, my view is that we cannot predict. We need to see what the appetite or the commitment is going to be like, you know, for true development activities. And I want to say also as an anthropologist, Jonah, that the point that you raised about local voices and who represents who is very important because at the local level, in terms of local level development, local level views, there's somewhat of an information void. We simply do not know as much as we should or as we could. And knowing what the local voices are is critical because that's how we customize development programming. Um, otherwise we're working in, in, in a void. So um, just want to say that I agree with you as an anthropologist of needing to understand the local political economy. Great. Well, now, uh, Matt, your thoughts and really any uh, final wrap-up thoughts, because we're just approaching the end of our uh, session. So uh, feel free to either to address that or just to add, to add whatever thoughts you have on any um, topic of this that you want to leave our audience uh, having in their minds. Yeah, I, I think it's the understanding that this is what war does. This is what violence begets. I mean, violence begets violence. And that's what you've seen. You've seen one great cycle of violence for 40 plus years in Afghanistan. Violence has been chosen as a solution by, you know, the Americans, the Soviets, the, the Pakistanis, the Indians, the, I mean, et cetera, et cetera, the Emiratis, the Saudis, you know, um, and the idea that somehow uh, foreign influence, foreign involvement is going to change anything. I mean, I, I will say um, uh, I am very afraid that the United States will uh, try to uh, will will support these warlords, uh, uh, Amr al-Sala, uh, Muhammad al-Nur, and Abdul Rashid Dostum, and others, as well as uh, Ahmad Massoud, um, try and uh, help them regain. And I'm very so I'm, I'm very afraid that that's going to happen, um, and that the Afghan people are going to be 
thrown into another phase of the war. Um, you know, and I, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but I, I think that this cruel peace that is existing right now in Afghanistan is the best thing that has happened to the Afghan people in maybe 40 years. And it, that's really awful to say because the Taliban are awful. The Taliban are brutal. I mean, there's no, you know, but the fact that the, the violence has stopped in most of the country allows, I think, for development and progress to possibly occur. Because as long as the war is going on, as long as the cycle of violence is going on, you are never going to develop. You're never going to progress. It's always going to be two steps forward, one step back, or maybe one step forward, two steps back, you know? Uh, in any case, thank you all for joining us. Thank our panelists. Thank uh, NUS. And um, let's, uh, let's hope that uh, this story um, takes a turn for the, uh, for the brighter rather than for the worse. So thank you all thank and uh, have a wonderful day. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you.